in Acts chapter 21, as we're going through the Bible on Wednesday nights, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, Acts chapter 21. Everybody doing well? Having a good day? Decent day? Somewhere like, is it tipping here or tipping here, right? Isn't it great to get into God's presence together, to to worship God, thinking about the power of the blood of Jesus? You know, you're blessed as you come into the the house of God. In the Psalms, Psalms 93, it says, if you're planted in the house of God, you're going to be fresh and flourishing. There's something about coming together on a Wednesday night. I like uh, Wednesday nights because it's the middle of the week recharge, to, to plug in, to be with God's people, to be in the Word together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord, we never want to tire of the truth that it's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you that you valued enough to give us your son, to die for us, to rise again, that we have new life. Jesus, we want to press into you tonight. I pray that you would speak in a powerful way, that you'd pour out your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that we need to keep in mind as we study God's word is how does it apply to the world that we live in today? And it's very easy to want to put your head in the sand and forget about the events that are taking place in our world and in our city and in our country. Of course, we think about all of the unrest that's in Ferguson, Missouri, and St. Louis, and it shows us the condition of the cities in in America. I hope that we don't just get so used to, to chaos that we just turn it off and it doesn't move our hearts. It represents the unrest and how things are, are unraveling before us. Well, we see in the news this week that a man by the name of James Foley, he was kidnapped in Syria as a journalist, and he was beheaded this week by the ISS, the Islamic State, in a retaliation of the United States getting involved in northern Iraq. Uh, there is a, a caliphate that is uh, in attempt, and what that is is to try to redevelop the, the Muslim empire from the 6th and 7th century. The Sunni Muslims in that region, they want to have Sharia law, and that doesn't represent everybody in those regions. It's really a minority, but they're the most violent, and they're coming in, and they're taking control. Nor- Northern Iraq, minority groups and Christians being killed. So here you have a 40-year-old man. He's a journalist, You know, he's not a warrior, he's a journalist. He's going over to try to cover the stories, and he's beheaded, and he's a U.S. citizen. And so now our country is trying to respond to that, and and what's the appropriate way to to be able to respond? I I think we have talked about, and we look about how in West Africa, we've got the Ebola virus that is taking place, and, and this week we see it highlighted where in a particular slum, they're not trusting the government, and so they're going into these clinics where people uh, have the disease of Ebola, because they don't trust the government, they're overthrowing the clinics and taking the people out of, of the clinics. Now, if that was happening in Colorado Springs, if there was that kind of virus that was taking place How would it affect us, right? But it's easy to kind of disconnect because it's over in West Africa. They estimate that there's already been 1,300 deaths uh, because of that. Today, the Gaza war rages on uh, there in Israel. Uh, the, The Hamas, they've since Tuesday fired 130 rockets at Israel. Just since yesterday, 130 rockets. Israel has retaliated by trying to take out one of the Hamas uh, generals. It uh, doesn't seem like they succeeded, but some of his family members passed away. I think that 
the world's still trying to process the suicide of Robin Williams. Uh, I picked up Time Magazine today, and he's on the front page of, of Time Magazine, and there's an article of his life. And then at the very end of, of this, this article, it talks about a quote from Winston Churchill. And Winston Hirsch, Churchill said that depression was like a black dog that he couldn't shake. So here we have one of the best leaders in all the history of the world that struggled with depression, and he tried so many ways to, to shake it from his soul, and it was the black dog that he couldn't shake. And same with Robin Williams. As his life is beginning to be told, and some of the things that he struggled with, he had this depression that he couldn't quite shake from his heart and his life. And the obvious question is, what about your family? Why didn't you care about your wife or your kids enough to, to not commit suicide? And what this article pointed out, and sometimes in depression and the depths of it, is that's what that happens is you stop caring about your wife. You stop caring about your kids. You can't see anything past this depression. See, this is what I fear in my life, is that I can come in on a Wednesday night and study the scriptures and somehow just kind of put it in a nice little compartment of my life. And just go, okay, we do our little rap on Acts 21. We understand the history of it. But what we need to see tonight is we need to see God. We need to see God in his glory. And fall down and worship him and then see that God's heart is to touch and change lives. You know, God wants to bring people to Christ in the Middle East. And we should be praying for that. That this unrest would ultimately cause people to look to the throne room of God. And we do know that there's people that are in the lies and the deception of Islam. And because of this unrest, they're going, if this is God, what the, this is, that they're saying and projecting, then I want to know the one true living God. And people are getting saved. When we were over in Uganda, one of the pastors, Pastor Jimmy, he got saved in a displacement camp. As things were in unrest in northern Uganda, people came in to share the gospel, and it was in that complete chaos that he came to know Christ as his Savior. Community developed where that displacement camp was, and that's where he still lives, and he pastors. We've got to see past all of the conflict and go, God, you're desiring to do a work in, in people's lives. God wants to do a work in St. Louis. I hope some people are being stirred to plant some churches, don't you? I hope there's some Christians that are saying, you know what, what is God wanting to do in the midst of this situation? Some friends of mine that have moved out to St. Louis and live in the, the suburbs, they, they posted, man, God just put on our hearts to go into Ferguson and take some pizza and just try to share love and comfort and listen. And they're just normal folks. And they're saying, you know, we got a heart for, for what's happened in 30 miles from, from where that we live. You know, that, that's a one-day drive. To, to go to St. Louis and say, man, but isn't it on our hearts to be able to pray? God wants to touch people that are struggling with depression. He wants to touch people tonight that are struggling with depression. Because we're believers doesn't make us immune from depression. We find in the scriptures that there was many great men and women of scripture that struggled with depression. If there were medical professionals reading the Psalms, they would definitely say, this guy's struggling with depression. What was the answer? the Lord to work, the Lord to move, and say, God, we see these things that are happening in our world, and how does your word apply to our world? Now, I talked about things on a very broad level, things that are probably very obvious to us as we go through our days, but there's things that are a lot more personal. You go, man, I'm really struggling with my job. I'm really struggling in this area of my family. 
my kids went back to school this week and this is what we discovered inside of the school. Well, you're in a good place. Let's see what God's word has to say to us. And what we find tonight in Acts 21 is an example of a life lived well. Paul's life is sold out to Jesus Christ. He's attempting the best that he can to be open to the Holy Spirit. And as we're searching for answers on what's the meaning of life, I think we get a good example in the Apostle Paul. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now it came to pass that when he departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to cause. The following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria, this area of the world that we're talking about tonight, just north of Israel, and landed at Tyre, a seaport city, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. If you remember, Paul had just met with the elders at Miletus. He didn't go to Ephesus, but he said, meet me at Miletus. Where's Paul headed? What's on his heart? He wants to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, to worship Christ as the fulfillment of the feast. For him to go to Jerusalem, this was a very dangerous assignment. And it stirs up the hearts of the believers in verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. You may want to underline, at least consider, finding the disciples. In the Greek, it means that they sought out diligently followers of Christ. This is good news. It'll be true in your life. Everywhere on you, you go on this planet, there's disciples of Jesus Christ. There's people following Jesus Christ for the most part. There's a few unreached places of the world. But for the most part, cities that you go to throughout this world, you're going to find disciples if you look for them. And this is a vital part of your Christian life, is being in fellowship with other believers. But a lot of times we go, you know what, they need to seek me out, don't we? We go, they've got to be friendly to me. But the Proverbs tells us if we want friends, we have to be friendly. We've got to seek them out. We've got to do diligence to, to seek them out. I'm going to give you a little inside track here. You guys generally sit in the same places in the sanctuary. And so do I. And so do I. Right? And so as you sit in the general same area, you don't even have to work near as hard as the Apostle Paul. Start reaching out in your little sector of the sanctuary. Get to know the people that are around you. Another inside track, if you get a cup of coffee over at Village Inn, they'll give you a free piece of pie. You can invite people and say, hey, let's go over to Village Inn. We've been blessed with a cafe right, up, right upstairs, have some great meals before service. You can, on a busy Wednesday night, Saturday night, you can come in and, and have a great meal before service. Reach out to someone and say, hey, why don't we meet up in the, in the cafe before church? It's open after church and be able to fellowship. You know, as lost as this city is, I bet there's still a handful of believers where you work and a handful of believers where you live, your apartment complex, the street that you live on, and make it a mindset to say, you know, I'm going to find out the believers at work. I'm going to look for some little hint. I'm going to be listening to conversations, but we can't do this Christian life alone. And Paul knew, even though he's only going to be here a few days, he's only there for one week, he seeks out believers. And what do they tell Paul? 
through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. We've got to do a little digging here. We've got to go a little bit deeper and do some homework because Paul has said several times that the Spirit is leading him to go to Jerusalem. In chapter 19, verse 21, Paul said he purposed in the Spirit, a Spirit-led decision to go to Jerusalem. In chapter 20, he said that he was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Turn with me in your Bible over to chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus speaks to Paul. Acts 23, verse 11. It says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome. So Jesus didn't say, Paul, you knucklehead, you weren't supposed to go to Jerusalem. So Paul obviously must have had it right that God wanted him to go to Jerusalem. So what is verse 4 that we read in our scriptures that this group of believers in chapter 21, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. As we'll continue in this chapter, we get a better idea that it seems like Paul is being warned by the Spirit of the suffering that he's going to go through. Then the believers tried to interpret or imply the message from the Holy Spirit by saying, Paul, you're not supposed to go. But instead, it seems like the message was more of a warning. And we'll see that unfold as as we go on. In verse 5, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. This is cool. I like this because Paul doesn't follow their advice and they don't give up on their relationship with Paul. They still love Paul. They still respect Paul. They get their whole families together to kneel down and to pray for Paul even though Paul didn't do it the way that they thought it should be done. In verse 6, when he'd taken our leave one of one another, we boarded the ship and returned home. So Paul's going on his way, and they return home. Verse 7, and when, he'd finished, and when we had finished our journey from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we were with Paul's companions, departed, and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philippi, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with them. Paul comes to Caesarea, which is now in Israel. He's now back into the promised land. Whose house does he come into? Philip. Philip was one of the original deacons earlier on in the book of Acts. We haven't heard from Philip in the book of Acts estimated for 20 years, 20 years, now we re-catch up with Philip. The last time we saw him was when he went out into the wilderness to minister to the Ethiopian eunuch. Then God supernaturally put him in Caesarea. He stays in Caesarea, must have gotten married or already been married, and he has four beautiful daughters. And these beautiful daughters in verse 9, now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So right there, we have a little bit about Philip's life. One is his daughters were a virtue. They were saving themselves for their husband. They were virgins, and they also prophesied. They're filled with the Spirit and speaking the message of God. So this evangelist, his love for Christ had affected and impacted his family. 
No greater joy than to see your children walk in truth. Amen? No greater accomplishment from Philip than to see his daughters catch it and walk with the Lord. We go on into verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus. Now, I just love that. That's a good name. Probably not a name for a child in our our culture. Do you call him Aggie for short? But I'm always looking for a good name for a dog. And I think this would be a good name for a dog. Agabus. Agabus came down from Judea. So he makes a little bit of trip to Caesarea, the seaport city. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Get the message? Hey, can I see your belt? Puts his belt, binds himself up in his belt. Whoever owns this belt, wink, 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 the Apostle Paul, is going to get bound when he goes to Jerusalem. This message was from the Holy Spirit. Paul is going to be arrested when he comes to Jerusalem. But notice now what happens with this group of believers, verse 12. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with them not to go up to Jerusalem. Notice the we there. This is Luke included. Luke is the human author and the companions of Paul, his trusted companions, and those that are in the place, which includes Philip and his four daughters, they plead with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because they love Paul. They don't want to see Paul killed. They don't want to see Paul beaten up. They don't want to see Paul bound. And there were plenty of times in Paul's life and ministry where he did flee from very clear execution. But this is a time in his life where he's feeling led by the Holy Spirit to surrender to it. God, you want me to walk right into it. You're warning me of it, but I'm still being led to move in it. Here's an important principle for us on both sides. Sometimes God will give us insight and he'll give us a message to share in the spirit, but it may not be our job to apply it. It may not be our job to interpret it. It may not be our job to say, well, then you better not go to Jerusalem. Our job is to simply say, the Lord wants you to know that when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested. But then our human flesh comes in very quickly, doesn't it? Because we love someone and we care for someone and maybe we're even a little bit afraid for them and we say, okay, okay, then this must mean, and that's not what happens here in verse 12. It's not that the Holy Spirit was saying not to go to Jerusalem, but this is where their human heart gets involved. And when we look at the big picture of the world's crazy and we want to have a life that's used by God, this is, you're going to face this, is you've got to know your calling, You've got to know what the Spirit of God is telling you and allow people to speak into your life to get the message of the Spirit, but don't allow them to talk you out of your calling because well-intending believers will come alongside of you and say, you know what? Here's something from the Spirit. And yes, there is something from the Spirit, but then their own intentions get in there a little bit. Their own fears get in there a little bit. How this worked out in in my life when I was moving out to Colorado back in 2000, which happened to be one of the best decisions of my life other than receiving Christ as my Savior. I mean, God has blessed me abundantly here in Colorado Springs. I moved here when I was 21 to be uh, the youth pastor, the junior high youth pastor here at RMC. Sean was 
came the same week to be the high school uh, youth pastor. And as I was coming out here, I really felt God giving me a burden for the youth of my church. But I had mentors in my life that I really respected that sat down and gave me some good reasons on why I shouldn't come to Colorado and why I wouldn't be a good youth pastor. And I could have very easily gone, man, I think the world of them, I'm not going to Colorado. And I met my wife out here, my beautiful wife, Amber. This is the only church I've ever worked at. This was the church that God had in mind for me to to lead pastor. I would have never had that in mind. And I almost missed it because I had some people in my life, just like Paul, that were saying, hey, don't go to Colorado Springs. Don't go to Jerusalem. We don't don't want you to to go down that, that path. And again, people I love, people I respect, people that are still a part of my life to this day, some of the closest relationships that you can have said, hey, don't go. And that's what Paul's going through here. These aren't just some people that have wild hairs that he doesn't care about. This is Luke. This is Timothy. This is Philip. These are his closest friends in the world that are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. But who did he have to listen to first? He had to listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are getting all psycho on me. Why? Because you're going to put some things in the Holy Spirit category that aren't in the Holy Spirit category. I'm not talking about going out and getting drunk, going out and divorcing your spouse, having sex outside of marriage, and blaming it on the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? That's not what I'm saying here. So many times I talk to people that are articulating a life of rebellion, and then they try to put it on the Holy Spirit. They're like, well, all my friends told me not to do this, but the Holy Spirit, I heard, listened to your study, and the Holy Spirit, no, you're getting all psycho on me. That's not what I'm saying at all. Paul's not going out into a life of sin. He's knowing his calling that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. And as you walk with the Lord, you've got to be able to listen to the voice of the Spirit, but then also be able to filter out when someone might be sharing their own emotions with you. But don't use this text to justify a life of sin. In verse 13, then Paul answered, what do, you, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? He's saying, you're breaking my heart here as you're weeping. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul had settled this matter that he was willing to be a living sacrifice. In chapter 20, we heard Paul say, I don't count my life dear to myself. He knew Jerusalem meant suffering. He knew it meant possible death but he was willing to lay down his life. In verse 14, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying the will of the Lord be done. So this is maturity on the ones that are bringing this message. Agabus, Luke, Timothy, Philip, they understand Paul's not going to be persuaded. So what do they do? They leave it in the Lord's hands. Don't be heavy-handed and controlling with people. You're not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit. If someone's going into a life of sin, that's in a time for us to plead with them with everything that we have in humility and meekness because we can stand on the word of God. But if someone says, look, I've prayed about this, and they have the character of Paul, and we know that they love the Lord, and we're, they're led by the Spirit, we trust that character, and we just say, the Lord's will be done. God's going to work this out. They didn't stand there and argue with Paul and cause a big division. They keep the relationship intact as they move forward. 
verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. So he didn't compromise God's call in his life. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manassan of Cyprus. That's a difficult name for me, but I'm going to stick with it. An early disciple with whom we were to lodge. What I appreciate about this is Manassan of Cyprus is recorded in all of history for his, his hospitality to the Apostle Paul for one night. Isn't that great? Paul's been traveling. He's road tired. And to have this home that's opened up to him, God records it. Your home's a wonderful, beautiful place. It's not about the size of it. It's not about the location in the city. It's your heart of love. Open it up to other believers. In verse 17, And when he'd come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Looks good, but things are going to get ugly here for the Apostle Paul. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all of the elders were present. James is the leader there in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. When he had greeted them, he told in, in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Remember the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles? The Jewish believers did go out prior to Paul. They just made sure they didn't tell the gospel to any Gentiles. <laughs> That's pretty intentional. Here we are going throughout the world, but we're not telling them. We're only telling Jews that God loves Jews. We're not going to tell the Gentiles. So here we have where Paul is declaring this in detail, which God has done among the Gentiles. This is what we've been studying for the last several weeks. Antioch, Ephesus, Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica. I believe in some ways that this is God's heart for us as a church. That God wants us to go to the Gentiles of the community, the Gentiles of the world. It's not always easy, but there's just certain people that are broken, that are hard to deal with, that are unacceptable, that are kicked to the side of the road, and that's who God wants to reach. That God wants to reach everyone, but he's got a heart for the Gentiles. Who is it in our city that churches are overlooking? That churches just go, that's a little too messy. I don't, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to go to, to that person. We want to have a heart for them, individually and as a church family. One of the things that I've prayed for over the years is that God would bring to us as a church people that nobody else wants. And in our cafe upstairs, about once or twice a week now, there's a large group of special needs that come in to our, to our cafe. And the reason that they come is it's a quiet place where they're loved and, and that they're cared for. And our community as a whole, whether it's, you know, Jason's Deli or, or Starbucks, nothing wrong with, with those places, they're not existing for the special needs crowd. And we're talking 20 or 30, you know? And they're here and they're just enjoying themselves and having a good time. And I go, man, praise the Lord. You answered our prayer, God. You brought us people that really need God's touch and God's love. Even where we're located in the city, it's great because anybody can get here, wherever you live. I mean, if you live in the Broadmoor, you can get here. If you live, you know, up in Monument, County Line Road, or if you live, you know, in the not-so-nice neighborhood, you can come. And there's a lot of people that are in need, really close vicinity to our church. Now, do you think that's an accident? That's God's heart. He's saying, whosoever, 
You know, I want the whole city to come. I don't care what your color of your skin is. I don't care what your economic background is, education. It doesn't matter. Whoever wills comes. We want to have this kind of heart to go to the Gentiles, the untouchables, those that other people don't have a heart for. It's not always easy, but it's God's heart. In verse 20, and when they heard that, they glorified the Lord, but, and they said to him, you see, brother, that's the, now let me correct you, brother. You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. No! No! They're zealous for the law. Be zealous for Jesus. You read that and they go, they believed. Your heart cries out and go, why don't you be zealous for Jesus? If Jesus has saved you from your sins, if Jesus has done what the law could never do, why would you be zealous for the law? Let me tell you why. Our flesh gravitates towards the law because it still involves us. If we can reduce the Christian life down to some rules and regulations, then we get to boast when we accomplish them. But the downside, that's ugly in and of itself, is we're not going to fulfill those rules and regulations and we're going to walk in condemnation. So we're either walking in pride, condemning others, or we're walking in condemnation. And you can study this more in the book of Galatians, where God's heart goes out to the Jewish believers who are going back under the law. Be careful that you don't start becoming zealous for rules and regulations. That your love and your passion is Jesus, his grace, his forgiveness. That it's Christ in you that's empowering you to live a Christian and and holy life. In verse 21, but they had informed about you that you teach all of the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying, that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. This is not true. Paul did not go around teaching Jews to forsake the law. He went around saying that Jesus had fulfilled the law. And the Jews had the freedom to practice the law in Christ and celebrating how Christ was the fulfillment. This is false witness against Paul. What then they assembly most certainly met, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. So they know there's going to be tension between Paul and this group that's zealous for the law. So they're attempting to solve this tension and saying, we've got these four men who've taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads. And that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. And Paul had felt led in Acts 18, verse 18, to take a Nazarite vow, to not cut his hair till he came to these feasts. So they're looking at Paul. They're going, he must have committed to a Nazarite vow. His hair's nice, nice and long. We've got these four guys that are committed to a Nazarite vow. Paul, why don't you pay for these guys? And it'll be a gesture that you're not against the law. In verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believed, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. This is Acts 15, which we covered in detail, the Jerusalem Council, what's expected of Gentile believers. Now what happens may surprise you in the next few verses, verse 26. Then Paul took them in, And the next day, 
having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expectation of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So Paul does it. He fulfills the vow. He pays for these other four guys to fulfill the vow. And you're saying, I'm confused. Is Paul going away from a gospel of grace? Is he giving in to the legalists? Is he giving in to the Judaizers, which is these Jews that are trying to bring believers back under the law? No, I don't think so. I think that Paul is being relatable without compromising the message. And Paul describes this for us in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23. Let me read it to you. It says, For though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all, that I may win the more. And to the Jews I will become as a Jew, that I may win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So Paul's saying, I'm willing to do this in order to reach people. To those who are without the law as without the law, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I become as weak, that I may win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might be all, that all men's, let me go back. I become all things to all men, that I might be all that I might by all means save some. Now this I will do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. This is a hard balance to walk, isn't it? To be relatable, but yet to not compromise. There's some in the vein of saying we want to be relatable will compromise. They'll say I have to sin in order to reach a sinner. Do we see Jesus doing that? Do we see him forsaking being light in order to reach the darkness? Absolutely not. So this doesn't mean that we engage in the life of sin in order to be relatable to to reach people. That's not, not what Paul's saying. But what Paul is saying in teaching is we need to take into mind people's culture. We need to take in mind from where they're coming from. I'll talk sports with people. All the men in the fellowship, if you like sports, come up and talk sports with me. I would love to talk sports with you. Why? Because I'm going to get to know you, you're going to get to know me, and eventually I'm going to start talking about Christ. I'm going to use sports as a bridge to talk about Jesus Christ. Plus, I like sports. I think God created sports. There's nothing wrong with liking sports if it's in the proper perspective. It's hard to live in Colorado and reach a lot of men from Christ if you don't know anything about the Broncos, right? If I'm getting my hair cut, I want to know what's going on with the Broncos so that I can have a conversation with someone that hopefully is going to open up to the things about Christ. That's what I loved about Tim Tebow being in Denver. It was a great segue about Christ. If your neighbor is really into gardening, you know what? Get into gardening for the gospel's sake. You might not care about gardening, but Google gardening. Ask them about their flowers. Just ask, you know, what is it about these flowers? Which one's your favorite? How's your garden doing? And before you know it, you're building a real relationship with that person in order to minister to them about Christ. If you've got someone across the street that's a real gearhead and they're, they're into cars and they're a mechanic, that's a bridge to be able to reach them for Christ. I believe that that's what Paul is doing here, but in no way is he going to compromise the message. So we want to be relatable, but we don't want to compromise. In verse 27, now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, oh no, 
as you've been studying the book of Acts with me, there's a group of Jews that are following Paul around everywhere, persecuting him, seeking to kill him, and these Jews have now come to Jerusalem. They're at the temple. Seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd. So they see Paul in the temple, and now they stir the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, in this place. And furthermore, he's also brought Greeks into the temple. Oh no, the untouchables have come into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with them in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now, this is false witness. Paul didn't bring this Greek, this Gentile, Trophimus, into the temple. He knew that this would not be respectful to the Jews, but this is what they accuse him of. In verse 30, and what I want you to start to consider with me for just a moment is Christ. Because Jesus was persecuted in Jerusalem to the point of death. Jesus was put on trial in Jerusalem. Some of these same men that came against Jesus are now coming against Paul. So think about Christ and how Paul would be relating to Christ's suffering. And all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the the garrison that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and and asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. John 19, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd yelled out to Jesus. Paul prayed something in Philippians. He records it in his letters that he wanted to know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Do you think he got the answer to his prayer? Paul said, I want to know Jesus more. And in order for me to know Jesus more, I have to suffer. And I've got to suffer in the manner that he suffered. I have to be rejected for righteousness sake. So we think about the rejection of Christ and we think about the rejection of Paul. Christ was rejected by the world and his own, John tells us, the gospel of John. Created the world, he came into the world, and the world didn't know him. He's rejected by his own town in Mark 13. He comes home to Nazareth, and they reject him in that place. He's rejected by his own family, his half-brothers not having faith in Christ until after the resurrection. He's rejected by his closest friends, Judas betrays him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter denies him and said that he never knew him. There will be rejection in your life that you go through. And in that rejection that you go through 
It's an opportunity to fellowship with Christ. I know some of you have very deep points of rejection from some people that were supposed to love you. You know, these are men that you think would love the Apostle Paul, but instead they're trying to kill him. The men that killed Jesus you think would be men that would love Jesus. You'd think that Judas would have loved Jesus, but he betrayed him with a kiss. That's the hardest type of rejection. It's from close relationships. And you can get bitter, or you can get better by focusing on Christ and his sacrifice and his suffering. I can't help but think as Paul's being beaten almost to death in the same city where Christ was crucified, that he wasn't meditating upon the beating of Christ. That he wasn't thinking about Christ's beard being ripped out. That he wasn't thinking of the trial of Jesus Christ. Take that rejection and fellowship with Christ. In verse 37, Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? This is a bold move, isn't it? Can I, can I have a word with you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? I got to tell you, this region of the world has had turmoil for thousands and thousands of years. If you were in Egypt tonight, there's turmoil in Egypt. And we open up our Bibles and there was turmoil in Egypt. And Paul's mistaken from this rebel in Egypt. So Paul clears it up in verse 39. But Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. This is phenomenal to me. With this mob that wants to kill Paul, Paul wants to speak to him. Why do you think Paul wants to speak to him? To set him straight? No, he wants them to know Christ. He wants them to know the freedom that Christ can bring. One of the things that you should know about Paul is Jerusalem and the Jews were always on his heart. He even wrote and he said, I would be accursed for them. I would be anathema for them. I would go to hell for them. I think Paul really believed that his primary ministry was going to be to the Jews. It only makes sense. He was a Jew. He was one who followed the law, but he knew the emptiness of the law, and he desperately wanted his countrymen to know grace. What he's speaking here is an opportunity, even if it means death, to point them to Christ. In verse 40, so when they'd given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and we stop right here, and this is where we'll pick up next week in chapter 22. <laughs> So read ahead, read ahead. But here's the conclusion. Here's some things that we can take from the text. Is first, be convinced of your calling. If you know you're supposed to go to Jerusalem, don't let your closest brothers and sisters in Christ talk you out of it because they're afraid of the suffering for you. You know what the Spirit's saying. It lines up with the Scripture. It lines up with the character of Jesus Christ, you go. You're going to be blessed. It may be difficult. There may be suffering, but go. Be convinced of your calling. Seek to be relatable without compromise. Christians, we should not be in this untouchable, unapproachable place. We should be the ones looking to build bridges. We see Paul doing that in his attempt to follow this vow. So be relatable, but don't compromise. And then finally, fellowship with Christ in suffering. One thing we know about life is there's going to be an ample amount of suffering. There's no way around it. 
We wish we could get out of it. Life is going to be hard. There's going to be suffering. But the silver lining in the suffering is that we get to know Christ in a greater way. So let's pray together.